Morning, everyone. Good to see you all here this morning. Great to hear the choir as well. Well done, Ellen. Good job. It was the greatest day in his life. Cup final day. Ever since he'd been a small boy, taken to matches by his father, he'd supported his local team. They were not a fashionable team, not in or ever anywhere near the Premier League. In fact, over the years, they'd struggled to remain in the league at all. But he had supported them through thick and thin, through good and bad, mostly bad. But now, the unbelievable, the unthinkable had happened. They had somehow, through match after match, made it to the cup final for the first time in their history. At the age of 60, it was the greatest day in his life. And so on cup final day, he made his way through the, through the crowds, lining the roads, approaching the ground. But as he reached the turnstile, he was met by devastating news. Barred from entry. His ticket, purchased at great cost, was rejected as a forgery. Protest though he may, there could be no mistake. His ticket was rejected. He was rejected. He could only stand outside and listen to the cries of the crowd and just imagine what he was missing. It was the greatest day in his life. The greatest disappointment in his life. Now, great though a cup final day is, and many apologies. My wife will be criticizing me here for using sports stories, but apologies to those who aren't football fans and don't appreciate this. There is a far greater day coming in comparison with which Football and everything else will pale into insignificance. And with that greatest of all days is the possibility of the greatest, most devastating disappointment. Now this is not what I say. This is what Jesus says as he draws his message, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew, one of the accounts in the New Testament of the Bible. We've been studying it together over the past months and we're coming now to a conclusion. So listen carefully to the words we come to today. It's just three verses in our Bible and they've been described as the most alarming verses in the Bible. The most alarming verses in the Bible. If you want a Bible, there are some blue Bibles here. Page 972, and Cameron is somewhere, and he's going to come up. So listen to these devastating verses from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through to 23. Thank you, Cameron. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Well, those are scary verses. And somehow it's my responsibility to preach from them. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, regarded by many as the greatest preacher of the 20th century, comments on these verses as follows. These surely are in many ways <clears throat> the most solemn and solemnizing words ever uttered in this world, not only by man, any man, but even by the Son of God himself. Indeed, were any man to utter such words, we should feel compelled not only to criticize, but even condemn him. But these words are spoken by the Son of God himself, and therefore they demand our most earnest attention. And with this in mind, I and each one of us needs God's help to understand what these verses say, what Jesus says to us here this morning. So I'm going to pray briefly, and then we'll turn to the verses. Just join me in a very brief prayer. Lord God, by your Spirit, apply the words of your Son to each of us. Use them to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. Amen. Now, if you've been with us in this series and you've got the Bible in front of you, the previous section, verses 15 to 20, which we looked at with Matt last week, in these verses, Jesus warns his followers about false prophets. He describes them as wolves in sheep's clothing who set out deliberately to deceive other people. But now in these verses, he describes people who are in fact deceiving themselves. He says that on that day, notice the words, that day, the day he's referring to is the day of judgment, the day at the end of time, when every human being who has ever lived will stand before God and Jesus himself will be the judge. And he says on that day there will be people who receive the worst possible shock. They fully expect to be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven only to find Jesus the judge say to them, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers. And rather than this being the odd and fortunate person here or there, it will be a widespread problem for Jesus says, many will say to me on that day. So if you're taking this seriously, if this is true, the most important question you should be asking this morning is, how can I avoid that devastating disappointment on the day of judgment? Or let me put it in positive terms. How can I know if I will get into heaven? How can I know if I will get into heaven. Look at the verses we have in front of us here, and you'll see in them, Jesus warns about two false grounds of assurance on the Day of Judgment. As it were, two counterfeit tickets that people will present in which they and their ticket will be rejected. 
We'll look at each one in turn, and for reasons which will become apparent, we'll spend longer on the second one than the first one. So here's the first warning, the first counterfeit ticket. Jesus says, warning number one, words alone are not enough. Words alone are not enough. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice firstly what Jesus does not say. He does not say, no one who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There will be some, many, who say, Lord, Lord, who will enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the Bible says very clearly, only those who have confessed that Jesus is Lord, that is God, will be saved. This basic confession of Christian faith is stated clearly in a New Testament letter to Christians in Rome. It says this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But Jesus says such a confession that Jesus is Lord, that he is Lord, is not enough to save you. Why not? Because it is possible for such a confession to be merely from our lips, to be superficial worship, worship in prayer, maybe in song as you've sung this morning, whatever the case. The repetition, Lord, Lord, indicates both fervency and frequency on the lips of the worshippers. But this alone is not enough to save you. Words alone will not save you. And if that is not enough, Jesus then goes on to issue a second warning. Not just what we say, but what we do. Look at the text in front of us. I'm only preaching from what is here. I would not dare to preach this kind of thing unless Jesus said it. Okay, warning number two. Works alone are not enough. Many will say to me on that day, Jesus says, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Notice the ticket they present is in three parts in the form of three questions. Addressed to Jesus about what they did. And they're all legitimate claims that Christians make. Lord, Lord, they say, did we not prophesy, that is, speak in your name, foretelling or even foretelling the future? Did we not drive out demons of people who are possessed by evil spirits? Did we not perform many miracles of healing, for example, in your name? So what is the answer to the question? There is some who believe the answer to the question, Jesus says, is no, no, you didn't do that. Your prophecies, your exorcisms, your miracles were all spurious. They were clever imitations of the real thing. In fact, such a thing is predicted in the New Testament part of the Bible. Here's a verse from 2 Thessalonians 2. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of, notice the words, counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. That sometimes happens and I've seen it for myself in different places having worked in three continents. There are spurious miracles and claims in the name of Jesus. But not always. I believe the obvious answer to the question asked by Jesus 
is, yes, you did prophesy my name. I'll turn this over in a minute. You did drive out demons. You did perform many miracles in my name, but I never knew you. There may well be true prophecies, real exorcisms, real miracles performed in the name of Jesus by those who do not know him or belong to him. Now, before the questions start to flood into Slido at this particular point, let me give you some evidence for this. And again, not my opinion, but from the Bible. Let's start with the Old Testament. You'll see in a moment why this is taking longer than the first point, all right? In the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, God's law is given to the people of Israel through a man called Moses. And God tells them all sorts of things. But one of the things he tells them is how to identify a true prophet, someone who claims to speak God's word, particularly about the future and predict things that are going to happen. Uh, and the book of Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book in the Bible, the fifth letter of the law, in chapter 18, if you're making notes, some of you I know make notes, it says, if what the person predicts doesn't happen, then you know that that person is a false prophet and they're to be condemned. But if you go back a little bit further into Deuteronomy chapter 13, it also tells you if someone who claims to be a prophet, speaks about the future, and what he says comes true, but he leads you away from the worship of the Lord, then he is to be condemned. In other words, it is possible that people speak truth about the future, but do not belong to God. Now, there is an example of this in the Bible, in the fourth book of the Bible, sorry. <laughs> Careful, my numbers. It's called Numbers. If you're making notes, Numbers 22, 23, and then a bit later on we'll come to 31. Just stay with me, it's quite important, all right? There is a prophet there named Balaam. He's not part of the people of Israel. And people of Israel are on their journey passing from Egypt to the promised land, being delivered by God. And there's a pagan king there from the country of Moab who hires this guy, Balaam, and says, I want you, you're a prophet, I want you to prophesy curses on the people of Israel because they're threatening me. And this guy does all he can to fulfill what he's being paid to do. But he cannot do it. In fact, he's stopped in his tracks by a speaking donkey who speaks to him and tells him to stop going the wrong way. And what he then has to prophesy is the truth about Israel. And he prophesies the truth. But then when you come to Numbers 31, you find that he is condemned because he leads the people of Israel into gross immorality. He predicts the future truthfully, but leads people astray. Okay, what about the New Testament? All right, we're getting there. Just stay with me, all right? As we continue in Matthew, we'll see, when we come to Matthew chapter 10, we'll see Jesus sending out the disciples, his 12 disciples, on a mission. Matthew 10, verse 1, he sent them out to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And they are mightily successful doing this in the name of Jesus. But I remind you that one of their number was a man called Judas Iscariot, who turned out not to be a true follower of Jesus, but betrayed him and was rejected. And in Matthew 24, further on in Matthew, Jesus said, 
what would happen before his return. Look at this, Matthew 24, verse 24. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. Now, this is crucially important. I mean, imagine, last week we were in this hall for a concert, a music concert. Imagine there's a huge, big Christian meeting and a guy stands up there and speaks in the name of Jesus and starts casting out demons. People come forward and they're being healed. And he speaks prophecies about the future. Would you pause for a moment and say, hang on a minute, this guy may not even be a Christian. I doubt you would were it but for the words of Jesus. The fact that someone can prophesy before exorcisms or miracles in the name of Jesus is not irrefutable proof that they belong to him. One writer comments, God who is holy, listen carefully, God who is holy can do holy things through instruments which are not holy. The ability to drive out demons says nothing about the inner holiness of the broom that God uses to do it. Or to put it more succinctly, a famous quotation which is attributed to Martin Luther and quite a few other people. All right? He says, God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. So, back to our question. How can I know if I will get into heaven? If words alone are not enough, what you say, and works alone are not enough, what is? Look again in full at what Jesus says, which is still in our verses, only three verses. All right? Not, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The only sure sign that you know that you are accepted into the kingdom of heaven is not just lip obedience to Jesus as Lord, but life obedience to his Father's will. The parallel passage in Luke's gospel, Luke 6.46, makes it clear. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And what about works? Look again at the full quotation. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers. No matter what I do in the name of Jesus, even the most spectacular thing, and few of us would claim those spectacular things, but most of us would claim many other things. He will not own me on the day of judgment if I have lived a life of evil. The word evildoers there in the original language is a present participle. That is those who persistently continue to do and live a life of evil rather than the occasional lapse of disobedience. Jesus says he does not know such people and will not own such people as his. Now, if you were with us last week, Jesus is saying what he said just before about false prophets. The proof is seen in their lives, he says. By their fruits, you will know them. And what is true of them is true of each one of us. The proof is seen in the fruit of our lives and character. And the key to everything is obedience. Now stay with me because we need to be really careful here, all right, to avoid misunderstanding. Don Carson, great New Testament commentator, writes, 
It is true, of course, that no one enters the kingdom of heaven because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no one enters the kingdom of heaven who is not obedient. It is true we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a person's life inevitably results in obedience. Just reflect on those words for a moment. It is true we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it's equally true that God's grace in a person's life inevitably results in obedience. Now, this is clearly stated elsewhere in the New Testament. <clears throat> Here are two of the first verses I learned as a child from the Bible. Ephesians 2, written to Christians in Ephesus, Greek city of Ephesus, verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, It is by grace you have been saved. In other words, you have been saved by God's favor. Not because of what you did. You've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, what you've done, so that no one can boast. I learned those verses. Only years later did I learn the next verse, verse 10. Let me read it again. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are not saved by works, but we are saved for works, to live a life of obedience. Grace, genuine grace in a person's life, produces good works. Seen in obedience to the Father's will. Seen in the lifestyle we've been looking at over these past months in the Sermon on the Mount, which was summarized as Jesus' blueprint for his kingdom of transformed hearts. Transformed hearts, transformed by the Holy Spirit living within us, produce transformed lives seen in the fruit of the Spirit, a living relationship with Jesus in which we know him and he knows us. So that on the day of judgment, he will not say, depart from me, I never knew you, but will welcome us into God's eternal kingdom. So how can I know I'll get into heaven? The only way you can know is if, in however small measure, your life is being transformed increasingly in obedience to God's will and following Christ. Is my life being transformed by the Holy Spirit increasingly? We need, as another letter in the New Testament says, we need to continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, at the start of this message, we prayed that God, I prayed that God would use it to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed deliberately. Now, maybe what you've heard this morning, maybe you've never heard this before. I don't know if you're visiting here. Maybe it's disturbed you. You were sitting comfortably. You kind of imagine that if you get to heaven and stand on the day of judgment before Jesus, surely he works on a curve and you must be in the top pass percentage somehow or other. But you now realize that the things you've been relying on will never get you in. Nothing you can do will qualify you for heaven. Only what Jesus did on the cross when he took your place is sufficient. As an old hymn that we used to sing as children, there is a green hill far away. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. You now realize the things on which you relied 
will not save you. And I simply say to you this morning, it is my responsibility to say to you that you are in danger of devastating disappointment on the day of judgment, of rejection by Jesus, excluded from heaven, unless you respond to God's free gift of grace and receive him into your life. And my great privilege to say to you today is this is the day of good news because the day of judgment is not here yet. Today you have an opportunity to respond to God's grace before it's too late. This is the great news. This is what we call the gospel, the good news. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, later on you can go and look in the Hope City app. This is explained really well and really clearly. But it concludes with a prayer which I've posted on the screen. And I want to give you an opportunity this morning. Here's a prayer. I want you to just read it through yourself as you look at the screen. I'll read it. And then if you want to say amen to this prayer, this can be your opportunity, your day, when you receive that assurance that you belong to Christ and you're sure of getting into heaven. All right? Here's the prayer. Listen carefully. Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. I confess that you died for my sins according to the Scriptures were buried and raised from the grave to give me new life. Please forgive my sins and give me the gift of eternal life. I ask you into my life and heart to be my Lord and Savior. I want to serve you always. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, if you're on the Hope City app, you can just click, I prayed this prayer. If you prayed that prayer this morning, speak to someone, tell someone, It's the greatest joy for us to see people coming into God's family, to see new birthdays in Christ. Come and speak to me or one of the leaders here. What a wonderful thing. We also prayed that God would use his word to comfort the disturbed. And I'm aware, having been a pastor for 25 or more years, that a message like this can be deeply disturbing for Christians because it causes us to examine ourselves and say, am I really sure of heaven? Maybe you're aware, as I am, that you're not yet living the life of obedience that you wish you were. And you're afraid, well, maybe, maybe I'll be rejected on the day of judgment. And I simply want to comfort you, to encourage you to say, if you are disturbed, that is a sign of God's grace in you and that you belong to him. Before you put your trust in Jesus, the Bible says you're dead in sin. You've got no response, no life. The fact that you are sensitive to sin, that you want to follow Christ more closely, that you want to be obedient to him, that you're aware of your weaknesses and failings is a sure sign of life, of encouragement. You see, those who are judged by Jesus on the day of judgment have no such compunctions. There are no such concerns. That's why it's such a total shock. Almost finished. In a moment, the choir are going to come and join us. We're going to sing a great hymn, uh, the hymn Amazing Grace, which many people know and never stop to think about the words. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It was written by a man named John Newton, who lived most of his life in the 18th century. He died in 1807 at the age of 82. 
Here's, here's the words he put, asked to be put on his tombstone. You can still see them in Olney in Buckinghamshire in the church there. This is what he wrote about himself. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa. He was a slave trader. He lived a profligate, totally abandoned, immoral life. Was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. And near the end of his life, when he could no longer see to read, he said this, and I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, you can say this. No matter how long you've been a Christian, and I'm embarrassed to say I've been a Christian for over 60 years. It's pretty sad, isn't it? This is what he said. Listen carefully to the words and be encouraged. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Those wonderful words. Let me read them again because they're so good. I'm not what I ought to be. You feel that? Not what I want to be. Not what I hope to be eventually in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God. So if that's your experience this morning, then join with the choir. We're going to sing Amazing Grace.